The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. People ask me all the time, like, do you wish you were mayor right now? Or do you wish you would run or had won the U.S. Senate race or whatever? Do you wish you would run for president? And I'm always like, no. And people think that it's some sort of comment on whether I would have won or whether it would be fun to do those jobs. It's just simply like, this is the first time in over a decade that I've really enjoyed my life and uh, I wouldn't make any changes. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. We look at stories from business leaders who have dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they picked themselves up, and how they hope workplaces can change in the future. You know, work can be an addiction for many of us, a way to avoid issues we don't want to deal with, people we don't want to confront, or demons inside. And here's the thing. It's a socially acceptable addiction. Undiagnosed post-traumatic stress disorder led today's guest, Jason Kander, to be the ultimate achiever and the ultimate people pleaser, which made a lot of people in his political orbit happy. Jason's drive led to a life filled with accolades many of us only dream of, a fast-track career in public office. But eventually, he realized he had to slow down, to let go of his addiction, and to give up his self-medicating through work. And the truth is, many of us will need one day to step away from our work for a time to deal with something going on in our emotional lives, whether because of depression, grief, or, in the case of today's guest, PTSD. Because sometimes it's just too much to work on your trauma while still having to meet all those demands and bring home a paycheck. Jason Kander has a stellar resume, a graduate of Georgetown Law School, a former army captain who served in Afghanistan, and former secretary of state in Missouri at a young age. He went on to become the Democratic nominee for the U.S. Senate for Missouri in 2016, narrowly losing the election to the Republican incumbent. And then Jason founded an organization called Let America Vote, a campaign dedicated to ending voter suppression. He ran for mayor of his hometown, Kansas City, but dropped out on October 2, 2018. And that's when the challenge of tackling the PTSD, in part through his work with the Veterans Community Project, began. Jason, before we, we dive in to the, the meat of what we're going to talk about, tell us a little bit about your background. Did you always plan on having a career in the military and then public service? Uh, no, I can't say always, but definitely from a young age. Um, you know, the military and public service was something that it was sort of in the maybe one day category for me, like when I was in high school and college. I don't know if I ever would have actually joined the military or not, but then 9-11 happened and that just sort of changed the equation for me. So when 9-11 happened, I was, I think, 20 or 21, and I just decided, well, um, my country's going to war, and I'm of military age, so I'm, I'm going too. It didn't make any sense to me not to go. My grandfather went in World War II, and my great-grandfather in World War One, and to me, that's just what you did. And so uh, so I signed up and joined, and and then after I came home from Afghanistan, you know, I had been thinking about running for office before that, and uh, but it really sort of crystallized for me the 
feeling of politics not being a game, but instead politics being something that has real world consequences. Because the first time in my life that I was ever on the receiving end of negative, you know, of real, of real bad consequences from political decisions was being in Afghanistan and not having the equipment we needed and that kind of thing. And, mm. and so it, it sort of changed it from just being a political science major who saw it as, you know, one side versus the other to understanding that there were real world consequences to this stuff. Were you were you an achiever when you were in high school and college? Like, were you always doing the best you could? I love to hear about, because most of the people, all the people I have on the show are, are remarkable, right? They've done amazing stuff. Like when it sort of kicked in, that they were always going to push themselves hard. Yeah, I think there's two levels for me. There was, you know, sometime around the be- right when I started college, I decided at that point I didn't know exactly what I was going to do, but I knew I wanted to go to a really good law school, and uh, which is interesting because now I'm like a recovering attorney, and it seems far in the rearview. But <laughs> but I, I decided I wanted to go to Georgetown Law School, and so I worked really hard in college, and I got into Georgetown Law School, and and then I worked really hard in the army. And then uh, the second sort of phase of it, the second level was um, what I did in politics. Um, I, you know, got elected to the state legislature at 26 or 27, got, became the first millennial ever elected statewide in the country at 31 when I was secretary of state. But what I look back now and see is that that sort of second level of, uh, you know, gunning after it, sort of uh, ambition was not entirely driven, but at least partially driven by untreated, undiagnosed post-traumatic stress and a sort of an, an addiction to self-medicating through work in a sense of shame and uh, a need for redemption and a feeling that, well, if I could achieve this or if I could make this change, then that might cause that healing, which was uh, not going to happen. It was an unrealistic goal, I've now learned. But um, you know, it, it, I guess on the bright side, it did put me in a position now where I'm fortunate to have a platform and, and that sort of thing. I'm processing, like my heart is racing. Cause I was just sort of like, ding, 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 ding. Like <laughs> I've never heard anyone put so succinctly and powerfully how the drive to work can soothe something in some of us. How did you realize that this was part of PTSD? That that probably sounds really weird to a lot of people. Uh, well, I realized it through therapy. Um, for those who don't know, uh, in 2018, in October of 2018, uh, after uh, about a 10-year uh, pretty successful political career that was, I was too, it appeared to everyone, including myself, that I was just really still at the beginning of. Um, let me I, let me brag for you for a sec, because I wrote a little sure. paragraph that Politico, which is like the Bible for politics nerds, called you the hottest star in democratic politics. <laughs> um, you were super successful. You had a New York Times bestselling book. You had um, at some point you'd launched a historically successful voter registration organization. Um, you were an incredible fundraiser. You were like you were like the guy. Uh, yeah, it was going well. Thanks. And, <laughs> um, and, and I, uh, I was running for mayor of Kansas city because, um, I was going to run for, for president. Actually, I was going to be one of the 30 or 40 people running as a Democrat for president in 2020 and, um, and was on a path to do that. And it was something was not right. Um, and it hadn't been right for years, but I was, it was just getting worse, uh, with me internally. 
and uh, and I decided that I was going to go home and run for mayor instead, and uh, and that I would go to the VA to get help. And at this point, I hadn't even admitted to myself that it was post-traumatic stress. I just thought something's not right. And, and, and you actually, you wrote once, I can't have PTSD because you thought you didn't earn it. Yeah. I just, you know, I, I was a military intelligence officer uh, and I, I was outside the wire a fair amount. And I spent a lot of time in rooms that I didn't know whether or not I'd get out of alive because my job was to get out there and meet with people and, and get information. But I hadn't had that more traditional combat where there were bullets whizzing by my ear or anything like that. I was just out there exposed for long periods of time. And, uh, and so I had told myself that that, that didn't count. Uh, I've come to learn that no matter what folks experiences, the vast majority of them tell themselves that it didn't count and that it wasn't enough. Um, and that's sort of a marked, uh, characteristic of, of post-traumatic stress, particularly combat post-traumatic stress. Uh, well, really all post-traumatic stress. And so, um, so I was living through that and then I decided, okay, I'm going to go get help. I, I, I was in a mayoral race that I was probably going to win by a, a pretty healthy margin, but it was, things were getting really bad for me personally. And so I decided to drop out of the race for Kansas city mayor, uh, basically just decide not to become the Kansas city mayor and instead go to the VA and, and start weekly therapy. And that's, that's what I did. And through that, to answer your, your earlier question, that's really where I learned that I had been using my professional uh, life to, I wouldn't even say soothe, I'd say as an avoidance strategy mm. for what was going on with me personally. Um, and personally, you know, for 10 years, I hadn't had a good night's sleep because of violent nightmares. And I hadn't had uh, the ability most of the time to be present with my family. I had become really emotionally numb. And, you know, but I put a really good face forward. Um, and, uh, and and not just for the world, like I wasn't deceiving people, I was also deceiving myself. Uh, and so um, that had just gotten to a point where I, I it was unsustainable and I had suicidal ideation and, and uh, it got frightening. And so I decided to do something about it and I'm really glad I did. And uh, now my life is totally different and it's really, really good. And uh, I do something different for a living now. I am uh, still very much involved in politics, but uh, but now I'm I'm uh, the president of a, of a veterans community, a veterans community project, which is a, a veterans nonprofit based out of Kansas City that's going national now. So, um, and it's very fulfilling. Let's go back to work and and accolades and sort of plunging forward as an avoidance strategy. I mean, I think that a lot of us non-military people have, you know, we think of PTSD and we think of movies, we think of veterans drinking too much, taking drugs. I mean, we, we really go to sides of PTSD that are less socially acceptable than becoming, quote, the hottest star in democratic politics. <laughs> That's a really tricky way to work out and avoid your depression because you probably get a lot of reward for it. You get so much external validation versus if you become a drug addict. Yeah. Um, you know, it's different and it's the same. Um, yeah. What I what I am careful to talk about whenever I, I speak about this is that um, because, you know, people who have experienced trauma, the the inclination, I know because it was the inclination for me, was to always rank and then um, sort of talk down your own trauma and your own experience. So mm -hmm. what I don't want is for people to listen to this and say, well, you know, my the way I deal with it is I, I eat too much or I drink too much or I gamble or I use drugs or whatever. Um, and then say, but this guy did this. So what's wrong with me? 
And the thing is, is they're all equal. I mean, you know, yeah, mine, like you said, maybe more socially acceptable, but that's not like necessarily a choice I made. It's just, that's the, that's the self-medication that was available to me. And, and it happened to be paired with the fact that I was already um, inclined toward public service. And, and so, you know, I don't want to completely take credit away from myself. Like I did what I did because I care about my country, but I threw myself into it yeah. with an abandon that probably had more to do or at least somewhat to do with my own trauma. And so I, I just always try and point out that like, there's no difference between the way I uh, handled it and the way other people do, because mine was still very damaging to me. You know, I, I would stay up really late telling myself I was working, but it was really because um, I, I dreaded going to sleep because mm -hmm. sleep was not fun for me. It was a violent, you know, hellscape of nightmares. And so I would, I would not get enough sleep. Uh, and then, you know, it all, it all just sort of spiraled. And then as far as like the socially acceptable part of it, like you said, that was sort of part of it too, because um, it became, my drug became the metric of, you know, how many people were uh, following me and how much of a chance did I have to make a change. And, you know, I remember it just, like any other drug, um, it became... Uh, less and less effective. So at one point I was uh, like in early 2018, um, I gave a, uh, I gave a major speech in New Hampshire. It was the largest annual fundraiser in the New Hampshire Democratic Party. I, I was the keynote speaker the year before me. It was uh, Joe Biden. And the year after me, it was Elizabeth Warren. And, and it was sort of very much my like, okay, I'm going to run for president speech. And it was live on C-SPAN rode to the White House and my parents watched it from home and, you know, that whole thing. And it went really well. And, uh, and the next day I remember not feeling anything mm. and thinking like, huh, um, there was a time when this would have really carried me for several days. And, uh, and, and it just didn't. And so, I, and that was, that was a bit of a turning point for me in realizing that something was really off internally and I couldn't deny it, that, that if I could have a professional and, and frankly, personal experience, because like, you know, my family was there with me. I had friends from Missouri, really close friends there with me. Personally and professionally, it should have been a very fulfilling experience. And it felt really empty within like 12 hours. And so that was a good, a little bit of a wake up for me that something was increasingly broken on the inside. And I, I think to your point, I would never, first of all, this, this show is a judgment-free zone. You know, I think, I think for a lot of people, it's with PTSD or trauma or, you know, depression, anxiety, we act out in many different ways. We may have a, we may have a drug addiction and we're workaholics, you know, um, we may be running marathons even when our, we're breaking down our body, you know? So I think that, um, for many people, it's not it's not an either or. They have many different ways of acting it out. I just I just think it's really hard when the thing that's harming you is a thing that you get so rewarded for. Yeah, the thing is though that um, in my case, what I now realize is politics wasn't harming me. Working at the way I was and, and, and working at anything in an avoidance capacity is what was harming me. So, like I remember at one point. Uh, several, a few months into weekly therapy at the VA when I was starting to do a lot better. And, uh, 
And one of the goals I had when I, so I, I sort of dropped out of public life for several months when I went into therapy and it was not for any reason other than I wanted to focus exclusively on getting better and not be distracted by uh, thinking about how to tell the story while I was sort of living the story. Yeah. Uh, I didn't want it to distract me from treatment. And so um, a few months into it, I was doing much better. And one of the goals I had had uh, initially was when and if I got better, I wanted to reemerge, not in a you know sort of wall-to-wall way like I had and be on every channel all the time, but in a, in a way just to demonstrate for people that post-traumatic growth was possible and try to set an example. And my therapist knew that this was a goal. And like five or six months into it, I was doing a lot better. And he was starting to encourage me to say yes to some of these media requests that I had had built up for a long time. And I remember saying to him, you know, I'm, I'm really nervous about doing that because the analogy I used is it's like I came here to get sober and your job is to get me back to my, uh, my job as a beer taster. And, <laughs> and I remember, you know, we kind of went with that analogy for a couple of weeks. And then at one point he said, you know, what if your analogy is right, except it turns out you weren't an alcoholic, you just overdid it because of what you were struggling with. And now that you have addressed a lot of your issues, maybe that maybe it turns out you just like beer and you can have one or two and be fine. And And so the analogy being, Maybe you can go back and do media. Maybe you can have a public life and not feel that you need it all the time. And so I hadn't thought of that. And I was, and I said, well, maybe that's right. So I went and I did a, the first interview I did, I did a, an interview with Lester Holt on uh, NBC Nightly News. Oh yeah, just Lester Holt. No big deal. Well, <laughs> um, you know, there had been a, a large <laughs> reservoir of stuff built up of people going, what happened with that guy? And, um, and then I did CNN and a couple other things. And then I just kind of paused to see like how that felt. And, uh, and I was able to pause and not think about it. And I was able to just go back to, by that point, I was doing some things I really enjoyed, like coaching my son's uh, little league team and stuff I never thought I was going to have a chance to do and beginning to work at Veterans Community Project and lead their national expansion and all sorts of stuff that was public service, uh, like, like Veterans Community Project, but wasn't politics and was really scratching that itch for me. And giving me work-life balance and allowing me to continue to work on my mental health. But I wasn't like uh, constantly thinking about, you know, what the next high was going to be, what speech I was going to give or what, uh, you know, media appearance I was going to do. And that was a big deal for me because it's when I realized, oh, I addressed a lot of these underlying issues and it turns out I can go back and do this stuff that I'm good at and that I enjoy and not feel that I need it all the time. I mean, I think it's I think it's super great, right? Because I mean, at the same time, you can't stop working, right? You you have to keep working. You have you have a clearly an inner um, intrinsic motivation to do this work, and so to take that away from you would probably be really damaging too. Yeah, and you know, I also I have a skill set, and yeah. I have a skill set, and I have uh, and I have a platform now, and when I can, I do enjoy being able to bring my skill set. And my platform together for things that I care about. And for a long time, it became, you know, if I can continue to achieve and if I can continue to work toward what I thought was redemption, then maybe one day I'll feel better. And that was an illusion. But now I do have this platform. I have, you know, people know who I am and I have this large social media um, uh, following and I have the opportunity to go on television, that kind of thing. So it's really gratifying to use that to help end veterans homelessness or to, you know, make uh, 
contributions to the conversation politically that are about nothing other than something I think should be said or something I think should be done with no thought at all toward, well, how does this affect like my trajectory? Because I'm largely healed of the need to prove myself in order to heal myself. I think that's called authentic leadership, you know? (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm, uh, Maybe. Um, and I, I thought I was doing that before, but I think before I, I was only half doing it. Was it a kind of a specific type of therapy to treat trauma or mm-hmm. just talk yeah. therapy? I did two, I did two kinds. Um, so I did uh, something called cognitive processing therapy, which is, um, you know, I don't know what the clinical way of describing it is, but for me, it was, it was talk therapy combined with uh, learning a lot about post-traumatic stress and how the symptoms play out. So Mm -hmm. for instance, for me, when we would do CPT, my therapist uh, would, he, I would talk about what I was feeling and then he would literally go to the whiteboard and he would, he would sort of put symptoms on the board and like what PTS is. And then he would sort of draw lines to the stuff I was describing. And what it did is it, it, it was like going to school about, you know, and my, my great uncle once told me he referred to therapy as getting a master's in yourself. And that's what, to me, that's what CPT was. It allowed me to understand that the things I was going through had an explanation and that how they tied to PTS. Yeah. Um, and so that was really helpful to me because it would, when I would start to feel uh, things, I now had a context for why that was happening. And then the second part was uh, prolonged exposure therapy. Um, and prolonged exposure therapy was basically two things. Um, one, it was I would uh, sit with my therapist and I would rec- we would record on my phone audio sessions of me telling the stories of more traumatic and frightening times um, in Afghanistan. And he would each time he would ask me questions throughout it as if he'd never heard it. And then in between the weekly sessions, I would have to um, listen to those recordings. I wouldn't know how to do anything else. I would have to close my eyes, lay down and listen to myself tell the story. And what that would do is it would unlock other parts of the story that I had sort of blocked out or purposefully unremembered or whatever details. And then um, and then the next week I would go in and I would do it again. And we did that until uh, I would get bored with a particular story and he would say i'd say i'm bored of this and and i remember the first time he said well good because that's the goal the Hmm. goal here is for you to get to the point where it no longer um raises your adrenaline or makes you feel a a fight or flight you know instinct but to get bored of it and then we would move on to another story and deal with that so that was um the first part of it and then the second part was something called uh, in vivo therapy which is part of prolonged exposure therapy which really just means in life and it was going out and doing things that I had avoided. So going to a restaurant and sitting with my back to the door for 45 minutes and not turning around or going on a walk in my neighborhood without turning around to look behind me or, you know, all of these different sort of, you know, things that had been very difficult for me because of hypervigilance, which is a symptom of, of uh, the type of post-traumatic stress I had um, or have, I guess. And, uh, and so that worked really well, too, because it's just you know, you get used to it, you, you can become accustomed to it. And, uh, and I had avoided that stuff for so long. Another interesting aspect of that was for years, and I'd even written in my book that I thought this was a way to solve it. Um, cause it was before I ever got any therapy. I, uh, I would avoid watching uh, movies about war or, um, particularly anything about kidnapping. Cause that was in my job, the big thing to be worried about over there. And, uh, 
And I thought that that would help me avoid bad dreams. But uh, counterintuitively, I was causing myself a real problem. I was causing myself more bad dreams because the way my therapist described it was he said, you know, your brain is pretty determined to deal with these intrusive thoughts and memories and you have your guard up all day long. You can do things to avoid thinking about it, but when you go to sleep, you don't have your guard up. And so it all rushes in and your brain deals with it then. And so one of the things I did for in vivo therapy is I actually watched a bunch of war movies that I had not watched while they'd come out in the last 10 years that I was actually really interested in, but had never watched because I thought they'd be bad for me. And that that sort of thing actually really helps. And I, I very seldom get the nightmares anymore. So you don't you don't sort of get triggered when you watch a show or a movie that is a realistic dis- depiction of your worst fear? It is triggering. Uh, but the di- there's two big differences now. One, I know how to process that. And two, uh, I understand that I need to process that. So, you know, like not long ago, I remember we were coming back from my vacation and we were on a plane and I watched uh, this movie 12 Strong, which is about the war in Afghanistan. And, and it and anyway, so I, I watched it and, and I remember afterwards, uh, when, you know, the plane, you know, when you watch a movie on a plane, like you feel like you're in a, you're in a tunnel and like, yeah. you know, you really get into it. And when the plane landed, like I, for about 30 minutes, like I told my wife, I was like, you know, I'm pretty amped up. And so I'm going to be distracted and, you know, and so for about a half hour I was, and then I was able to kind of roll through that. And then, um, that night I, I didn't have any bad dreams about it at all because so that on the one side, it, yeah, it amps you up. But what it also does is it allows you to process the stuff that your brain wants to process anyway. Hmm. And, uh, and so that was stuff that never would have occurred to me before uh, I went to therapy. That is some effective therapy, man. I mean, <laughs> that's amazing, I have to tell you. Yeah, I mean, I was, you know what? Um, I, uh, I remember one of the things about post-traumatic stress is that um, it, it convinces you that you didn't earn it and it convinces you that you that it never existed and so that's how i felt going into it and then i went through therapy and you know i started to get better and then a couple months after that i remember going back and seeing my therapist and saying like why you know is it possible that i really had post-traumatic stress when i got better you know i was i hear from thousands of people all the time who are experiencing this other mental health issues and so many of them are saying like i've tried this and i've tried this and it's not working and i went back to him and i said hey I feel really inadequate about the fact that I got better. Maybe, maybe there was nothing wrong with me. And he said, no, look, you're supposed to get better. And he showed me this study that they had done. My therapist at the VA is an incredible guy and, and has been really important to me. And he showed me the study that had been done at the Kansas City VA where, where I go. And he said, he said look, you know, the, the vast majority of people who commit to this program, they do get better. You're yeah. supposed to. It's an injury. And it's like any other injury. You can heal or you can at least recover and get better and manage it. And, um, and so that is one of the things about it is like, but it was effective therapy. But you did your homework too, it sounds like. like uh, you That's know, the you, big thing. You did you the physical therapy, right, that goes along with the injury, healing from the Ex- injury. Exactly. Like yeah. if you will, and, and look, not every kind of therapy is going to work and you may have to, it may not work for you, so you may have to try something else. But what I always tell people is if you are committed to getting better, um, then and you just keep trying things and 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 throw yourself one hundred percent into everything you do. You're going to get better. Um, and uh, I was just really fortunate that you know the VA like this is they're very experienced at this, and there was never anything 
that I said to my therapist where he was like, whoa, really? <laughs> you know, it was like everybody who sat in that chair was having a pretty similar experience. And so uh, that's really fortunate for me. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Take me back to the night of or day or week when you decided not to run for mayor. I mean, you kind of describe it now like, well, I just decided to run and focus on my health and go to therapy. I don't believe you when you say that, that it's so lightly like that. Oh, um, yeah. It's easy to say it that way now. I'm sure it was like a wrenching, grief-filled, anger-making decision. Like, what did it feel like? Yeah, it sucked. Um, it, well, it was, in some ways it was gradual, but in most ways it was, it was all at once. So it was gradual in the sense that it had been several months of me feeling just not right and, and getting increasingly worse and, and admitting to my wife that I was having suicidal thoughts or telling my campaign manager or a few close campaign staff like that I had been depressed. And, but it, it came to a head, uh, where, you know, I'd been, my mayoral race, uh, I got out after 99 days and 98 of them were really bad for me personally. I mean, they were great for the campaign. Like we, first day we sold $25,000 worth of t-shirts. I mean, it was like going well. Um, but, uh, for me personally, and that, and that was the other thing. It's like, it was clearly like, like we, it was a nine person field and we outraised the other eight people by a factor of three and all of them combined. I mean, like we were crushing it. Are, so it should have been great. Are you that good a compartmentalizer that you can like be depressed and then sh go be charming at an event? I mean, that is amazing because I, I have chronic depression. And when I'm depressed, like I can't get out of bed. I can't smile. Sometimes I can't talk. Uh, I was pretty practiced at it. But yeah. also, uh, I didn't know I was depressed. <laughs> so <laughs> so like I, I just I just, you know, I lived with this for 10 years without understanding what it was. In 11 years. And so as a result, I got to a point where I just thought this is who I am. And this is because I forgot what I had been like before I went to Afghanistan. And, and also, most of the people I was spending all of my time with uh, were people who only knew me post my deployment, right? So like, other than my wife, and my parents, who I was not getting to see very much, um, everybody I was around were my friends who I had made in politics. And they, you know, to them, it was like, well, Jason doesn't like to have people sit behind him in a meeting. That's just who, that's how Jason is. Like that to them, that wasn't a symptom. That was like all they'd ever known with me. And so, uh, and so that was sort of my context for all of it. And it had been so long that like my wife had kind of forgotten how I used to be. And also, you know, she was experiencing secondary post-traumatic stress from living with me. So, so it was all a, a big mix of this stuff. And yeah, I could, I could do that, but it wasn't like I was putting on a face. It was more like, for me, that's where I was, that's the only place where I was getting any sense of feeling alive. So like, I was very charming because like, that's when I was having a good time, you know? And the thing was, is throughout the mayoral campaign, that was getting less and less the case. I and mean, it was getting harder and harder for me. 
and um, and I was not enjoying any of it, even though it was going well. And like I love my hometown. I'm a fifth generation Kansas Cityan, and I was on on a path to go into the office of mayor with a, a huge landslide and a serious mandate and an ability to do big things. And all of that, I knew intellectually that that should have been a great feeling. Um, and it just wasn't. And so that was like starting to help me understand. Um, and then, uh, I, I had like a night where I was really, I was really feeling down and I was really, um, feeling like, pronounced suicidal ideation. And so I called the veterans crisis line and I talked to a, a lady uh, there. And, you know, up until this point, what I'd always been telling myself was, you know, it wasn't post-traumatic stress and it wasn't related to me having served and you know, all these lies I was telling myself. But the big wake up call for me was while I was talking to that woman, it became really clear from the sound of her voice that I was not an exception, that I did not sound any different than anybody else she had talked to during that shift. Uh, and, and so that was when I, when I sort of, when that dawned upon me, that was a a big revelation. What what did she say? Did she, I mean, how did she communicate that? That she knew that? Oh, just very calmly. Like I, you know, I, I guess maybe my expectation was that it was going to be, you know, I, I called almost, um, like, uh, reluctantly and apologetically. Like I felt, you know, odd about it. Right. And, um, because, you know, I was telling myself like, well, you know, I'm calling this thing, but this is probably not what I need. But it was just clear from talking to her, like my responses to the questions, the way she responded to them, that the way she was proceeding with it, like I was exactly the person who was supposed to call this, this line. And it's hard for me to say like what she said. It was just more, there was clearly nothing in her tone that said that I was any different than anybody else. And that was a big wake up call for me. And I'd say within 24 hours is when, I decided that this was important enough that, uh, and I was just scared, you know, so I have a, a wife and a son and, and I just decided I was going to get serious about, and, and the, the thing I had to think about was whether or not to try and pursue treatment while running for mayor. And, and I ultimately just decided that the fact that I would, had been too scared to talk about this publicly before because of politics meant that I wouldn't fully commit to it if I was staying in politics while doing it, or if I was just staying in public life while doing it. And, uh, and I didn't feel like I could fully commit myself to the mayoral campaign at that time the way I wanted to, even though I know I knew like I probably could have stopped campaigning and had a pretty good chance to win a few months later. I still was like, that's not how I do things. You know, it, it was a hard decision. The way my wife put it was, I didn't know at that time that I was trading in being mayor for getting healthy because I didn't know that I could get healthy. I just knew I was trading in the one thing that was going really well for me. Um, but I'm really glad I did. Wow. That, that, that phone call, that woman, you know, changed your life. Yeah. Maybe saved no, your life. No, 100%. Yeah, people ask me all the time, like, do you wish you were mayor right now? Or do you wish you would run or had won the U.S. Senate race or whatever? Or do you wish you would run for president? And I'm always like, no. And people think, that it's some sort of comment on whether I would have won or whether it would be fun to do those jobs. It's just simply like, this is the first time in over a decade that I've really enjoyed my life. And uh, I wouldn't make any changes because I'm enjoying this quite a lot. I'm so glad. (laughs) Um, My last question for (laughs) you. I mean, that's awesome. Everyone should say that. Um, My last question is, is you, you mentioned that, you know, your team, your team before your treatment just knew you as the guy who like you, 
couldn't have anyone sit behind you. How do you run and manage and lead differently now that you know who you are and what you need to thrive? Um, One is I don't walk around with an enormous sense of debt to everyone around me. I don't walk around in this like knee deep guilt about myself and, you know, cause I, I just spent 11 years feeling as though I didn't do anywhere near enough when I was in Afghanistan or when I was in the army. And therefore I, um, you know, I was constantly trying to redeem myself. So anybody who ever asked for anything, like any, from a selfie to a 45 minute mentoring call to a fly across the country to do an event for somebody. I mean, I said yes to absolutely everything for years because I, one, I was afraid to slow down. And two, um, I just felt like I owed everyone. And, uh, and now like I take command of my own schedule and I'm really diligent about my work-life balance. I mean, I, I've gotten not just into much better mental health, but into great physical health. I'm in the, including the time that I was in the army, even including that time, I'm in the best shape I've been in my whole life. I work out five or six days a week really hard and, and I prioritize it because for me, it's really good for my mental health. And, um, and so that's one of the ways my leadership style has changed is I now recognize in a real way that like, I also, you know, I have to take care of myself as well. I say no to a lot of things. And I mean, you know, it's like, it's funny. I, I spent a year as a CNN commentator and even after that, I was going on CNN or MSNBC all the time. And now that's before I you know, made my announcement and stepped back. And now, like when I do, I get plenty of requests to do cable TV and that kind of stuff. But when I do it, it's for one of two reasons. It's either to advance Veterans Community Project or it's because like I'm in New York City and I'm there on work and I can't be with my family anyway, so I may as well go by MSNBC or CNN and, you know, or, but I get, I, I frequently will say no to the evening shows because I'm like, well, it's during dinner time and I'm not going to go down to a studio downtown Kansas City and do a remote during dinner time. And that's just not a choice I ever would have made. And as far as where I work, the best part is it's like I'm the president of Veterans Community Project um, and, you know, all of our co founders and, and pretty much all of our C level. Uh, C-suite level um, leadership are combat veterans with post-traumatic stress. So uh, it, it, I think we all lead in a very different way in that we're always checking on each other. And we're, not to mention, we run an organization where a whole lot of our, of our clientele, so to speak, you know, they suffer from the same things that we do. They just have not had the resources we've had. So, um, I have a real work-life balance and I say no to a lot of stuff. And the biggest thing is I don't feel like I owe everybody everything all the time. I remember not long ago, my dad said to me during, there was a, a little while back, somebody was campaigning for something. It was somebody I had supported. And, and my dad asked me, so are you going to go out and do any events for them? And I said, no, I don't think I am. And, and he said, and this was not him suggesting this to be the case. This was just him knowing me over the years. He said, you don't feel like you owe it to him or anything. And I remember thinking about it for a second and going, you know, dad, I'm, pretty sure I don't owe anybody anything except I owe my friends and my family love and friendship. And he was like, yeah, that's right. And, and I, it was a big deal for me to say that out loud. So I do that stuff, but I just do it because I'm like, I care about this and I want to go do it. And never because I feel like I owe anyone or anything. Oh man, that's beautiful. Well, Jason Kander, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed it. This is the final episode of season two of the show. 
I'll see you soon for season three. And you know, I've gotten some great ideas for future shows from listeners recently, so please keep them coming. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at MoraAM or send me a message on LinkedIn. You can email anxiousachiever at gmail.com, but do send me your feedback and ideas. I want to give special thanks to my producer, Mary Dew, and the team at HBR, Colin Howarth, Ann Saney, Adam Buckholtz, Maureen Hawk, Amy Gallo, Adi Ignatius, and the editorial team who worked with me on um, my big idea on anxiety and leadership. I really urge you to check it out, especially um, Gretchen Gavitt, Kelsey Grippenstraw, and Ania Wachowski. Thanks to my advertisers, you keep us going. <laughs> and I'm so grateful to our guests who bring their truths to the show. Hosting The Anxious Achiever is a source of joy and fulfillment in my life. And I thank you for listening and supporting. See you next season. From HBR Presents, I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. Anxious Achiever.